I have John Scott's microphone, so we may have to do a little, I sound like, I feel like I'm loud, and I'm oh, usually okay with my loudness. Tripp, thank you for that prayer. I love your enthusiasm. I do. I love your joy, and I love your enthusiasm. Um, gosh, a couple things have already happened this morning that kind of just got me uh, out of kilter a little bit. Uh, there's a friend of mine who is here. I haven't seen her, I don't think, in about four years, and we started a Bible study together at work, and I looked at her one morning as we were talking about doing it, and I said to her, I said, do you want to do the most intimate thing two people can do together? <laughs> and she's married, and I'm married, and the blood drained out of her face, you know, and I said, we're going we're gonna to pray together, and we're going to read God's Word together. And I, and I was being tongue-in-cheek, but I believe that's the most intimate thing we can do with one another is pray and, and share God's Word. The other thing is, um, if you notice Steve Razor, our reader this morning, he came by and paused at the corner there, and he kind of looked me deep in the eyes, and I thought he was going to say something really encouraging and beautiful, and he said, I really like that beard. <laughs> I know why he likes it, because he's no longer the only guy at the service with a white beard. But uh, anyway, it's great to be here. I love you all. I, uh, I have, um, all week I've been thinking about this sermon and praying about the word that the Lord wanted me to bring to you. And the word that I kept hearing over and over, which I didn't want to bring, was defeat. Defeat. I don't want to stand up here and talk about defeat to you all. Um, but it's the second week in a row where Jesus is clarifying to his disciples what it means to be the Messiah. You see, they know what it means. Like we know what it means to be president or mayor or, or the priest in charge at St. Paul's. We have an idea what it means. And they knew what Messiah meant. But he's clarifying what Messiah means because not only does he know, he is the Messiah. And so this is the second week in a row where Jesus has given them this threefold order of life threefold order of life. Last week, what Jesus told them was, if anybody wants to be my disciple, he says, you must do three things. You know, three things must happen to you, actually. Uh, so first, you're my disciple. I've called you to be my disciple. Tyler made this very clear, and it's an important point. We don't do these three things to become his disciple. What Jesus is saying, if you want to be my disciple, if you're my disciple, then this is what will happen. You must deny yourself. That's the first piece. Pick up your cross. That's the second piece. And follow me. That's the third piece. This morning, he tells his disciples in even more clear terms what it means to be the Messiah, but it's still a threefold form. He says, the Son of Man will be betrayed. In other words, he'll deny himself because he's perfect. He's sinless. He's the last person on earth who should ever be betrayed. So deny himself. He will be betrayed. He will be killed. The creator of the world, the creator of humanity, is going to put himself in human hands and be killed by his own creation. And on the third day, rise and be resurrected. Another threefold order. It's three weeks, two weeks in a row of defeat, defeat, defeat. And let me just say for all of us, don't we hate losing? You could say yes. Yes. We hate losing, don't we? Somerville football team doesn't lose. How many victories did John McKissick have? That's a big they don't say how many times he lost. They put it in small print. Um, our country, we're not a country of losers. We're a country of winners. Our country defeats people. We're mighty. We're victorious. We, we don't lose. We win. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we hate to fail. But last week's gospel and this week's gospel folks are confronting us and shouting at us, guess what? Guess what? We look like lovable losers to the outside world. 
You've gotten up from your warm beds. You're not watching CBS Sunday morning. You're here gathered with a bunch of other lovable losers. You know, you just don't quite know how the world works. Because if you did, you wouldn't be wasting your time here. You wouldn't be wasting your time here. So my proposal this morning is let's get more comfortable with our failures. Let's be losers. Let's, let's, let's get more comfortable with failing. I'm going to talk about it at the end. I'm going to give you an example of what I mean. But always doing the right thing, here in church especially, I think sends the wrong message. I'm going to put Tyler on the spot again. But he, he looked at me a month ago and something went wrong in the service. And he looked at me and said, Gary, I think we probably should fail more often. Don't worry, Tripp. I don't think he's going to make that a habit. But I, I, th- I think we should, probably, we should probably make mistakes or at least confess our mistakes more often. Because what Tyler knows and what I want you to hear is there's good news in failing. The Bible has, yeah, the Bible has good news for us when we fail. The most important good news is right there in Scripture. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Listen to what Paul says about failing. He's lost the game. He lost the election. He's, he's at the lowest point in his life. Maybe it's, for some of us, it's divorce. Maybe your spouse was unfaithful or you've dealt with adultery and, and, and you're just humiliated and it's dark and it doesn't feel like Jesus is there. Or maybe this person that you prayed for and loved, they died. Or maybe you didn't get the job you wanted. Or maybe, or maybe, or maybe. You fill in the blank, but imagine a moment of humiliating defeat in your life. And then imagine Paul coming alongside you and saying this, my grace is sufficient for you, the grace of Christ in the midst of that failure, is sufficient for you, for Christ's power is made perfect in your weakness. Paul says, therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly about my weakness, about my failure, so that Christ's power will rest on me. Listen to this. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness and failing. I delight in insults. I don't really like your dress this morning. Your hair doesn't look that nice. You know, your car's kind of dirty. I delight in hardships. No, you didn't get the raise. You didn't get the raise. Go back to your cubicle. Uh, the guy that you really don't like, he, he got the raise. I delight in persecutions. That guy at work is constantly talking about me behind my back to the boss. I can't get a break at work. I delight in difficulties. My kids won't listen, and I've got low air pressure in my tires. The little yellow light is driving me crazy. Because Paul says, when I am weak, in those moments of failure some comical and some deadly serious. In those moments of failure, then I am strong because the power of God is revealed. Um, I can tell you with certainty about two people who I have their permission at our church plant who have come through some of the most horrible things any of us could come through. One uh, came through a divorce. Her husband was unfaithful. She has four children. They have low income. And he walked away. And she was humiliated in her social circles. Humiliated on social media. She was at the lowest place you could be. You all know what that feels like. We all know. Humiliated. And we started to do this tattoo art exhibit. We're taking pictures of people's tattoos so that we can hear their story. We're interested in hearing people's stories. Anyway, she came to me and said, I love photography. I said, really? Come take the pictures. And so she's become kind of the point person for our tattoo art exhibit. And she is coming out of vast defeat. She's not perfectly okay. I wish I could tell you somebody gave her a million dollars. She's got a new car and she lives in a mansion over in Coosaw Creek. She doesn't. But 
in the midst of that horrible defeat, she is seeing God's power on display and she is experiencing God's greatness. The other person um, got arrested, got, got publicly humiliated and arrested and was contemplating the worst thing of all, maybe taking their own life. And I ended up talking to that person at the moment they were about to do that over the phone. It was a strange event. And uh, today, she's been worshiping at St. Paul's and worshiping at St. Timothy's and is part of the hospitality team. Her life's not perfect. It's not perfect, but she's not living in the defeat. She came through the defeat. The word promises, scripture promises that in that defeat, God's power will be made manifest, and it is being made manifest in their lives. It is being made manifest in their lives. The second important part about being defeated, if we're not convinced that we should embrace our defeat yet, is it humbles us. It humbles us. It reminds us that we are not, as Muhammad Ali said, the greatest. The universe does not revolve around us. As parents, we tell our children sometimes, you know, the world doesn't revolve around you. Defeat puts us back in that right place where we recognize we're human. We're fallible. We don't control our own destinies. So with these two benefits of defeat, I want you to hold these two benefits of defeat. God is glorified and we're humbled. Hold on to those two and look at the gospel for a second with me this morning. There's parts of it we'll put up. Jesus is for a second week in a row stopping on the road and teaching his disciples. The word teaching is actually in there. And like I said at the beginning of the sermon, what he's teaching them is, what it means to be the Messiah. Because like I said, they have in their minds the Messiah, the Messiah is powerful. He is a king. He will ride a horse with a sword sheathed to his right thigh. And he will, at a minimum, kick the stinky Romans out of our town. The Romans have occupied the Holy Land, and the Messiah, when he comes, is going to set all things right. But at a minimum, he's kicking the Romans out. We're going to have victory. The people of Israel are going to be vindicated. The Messiah is a strong, vindicating leader. He's a strong, vindicating leader. And so Jesus is setting them down again, and he's saying to them, wait, guys, you've got it wrong. Um, what's going to happen to me is the same thing that will happen to you if you follow me. It's what's known as the cruciform life. It's a big word. It's kind of fun. You could bandy it around at lunch if you want to. You can say, oh, we heard about the cruciform life, and you'll get people to turn their heads. The cruciform life simply means our lives are shaped in and by the cross. His life is defined and shaped. Jesus' life is defined and shaped by the cross. He was betrayed, he was killed, and he was resurrected. He says that to them this morning in the gospel. That's what's going to happen to the Son of Man. And then what he said last week was, and if you choose to follow me, the same thing's going to happen to you. You're going to have to deny yourself. You're going to have to pick up your cross and follow me. I went to seminary and was excited about being there. And on the first morning of chapel, all of my excitement left me. And I was suddenly very, very anxious and thought, what am I doing here? I can't do this. And I was on my knees. I remember right where it was. And um, the Lord came to me in prayer and said, well, I'm glad you're here, but if you're going to stay here, um, you're going to have to give me the cross that you were carrying and, and take this new cross. You see, the cross that I was carrying, it was about this big. I may have, you may have heard me say this. It was a small little cross, and I could carry it everywhere. I carried it into St. Paul's to do Alpha. I carried it to work. I carried it in my swimming pool. I carried it all over the play golf with it. I could play golf with that cross. I could do all kinds of things with this cross that I was carrying. And Jesus says, well, 
that's fine, Gary, but if you're going to stay here and you're going to study and be in this community for the next three years, I've got a new cross for you. And he showed it to me. And I couldn't see either end of the top of it, and I couldn't see the other end at the bottom of it. It was humongous, and it was like granite. And I remember thinking, I can't even get my fingers. You know when things are so heavy you can't even get your fingers under to lift them? I couldn't even get my fingers under this cross to lift it. And Jesus looked right at me and he said, yep, yep, you're going to carry this cross, but I'm going to help you. If you want to stay here, you're going to carry this new cross, but I'm going to help you. I'm going to help you. So that's what it means to carry the cross. And when he helps us, then we follow. Then we follow. Because here's the way he hopes the cross shapes us, which is really going to be hard to hear. He hopes the cross shapes us into servants. It's right there at the end of the gospel as he talks about children in verse 35. He calls the 12 together and he says, if anybody wants to be first, he must be last and the servant of all and the servant of all. So the son of man didn't come to serve, ride in the best limousines, have the best golf courses at his disposal, have the best jobs. The the son of man came as a servant and to give his life as a ransom for many. Servants. We're called to be servants. We're called to be lovable, losing servants. Lovable, losing servants. Because when we allow that to happen, three benefits come that can only come through that defeat. Three benefits. We're connected to God and our neighbor. That's the first benefit. We're corrected about ourselves and our place in the universe. And we're finally, and most importantly, we're saved for eternity. Listen to those three words again. Deny yourself. Deny yourself. You're being connected. When you deny yourself, you allow yourself to be put back in its right place or in your right place. A quote from my favorite Lutheran pastor. This is what she said this week. What's challenging to me about Christianity is being forced to look at your own stuff and being pushed into a space of grace that's really, really uncomfortable. When we deny ourselves, we've got to deal with ourselves. We've got to say, it doesn't matter if the air conditioner's not on my temperature. It doesn't matter that the food being served tonight is not exactly what I like. It doesn't matter that this didn't happen or that didn't happen to please me. That's what denying ourselves means. It puts us back in a position of worshiping God, putting him in his rightful place, and that's the only thing, folks, that will allow us to be connected to one another, right? Because if you haven't noticed, the people sitting in this room can sometimes be messy and a pain in the rear. I'll say it's tough. We're messy. We're, we're messy people. We've got, we've got our, our whole sack of problems that we carry around with us. And it's hard to be in relationship with each one of us. It's hard. But when we deny ourselves, we're promised that God mysteriously will connect us. And so it won't matter what we're dragging around. We'll only be known to each other in Christ. Secondly, it corrects us. If we have to pick up our cross, or if we think about Jesus going to the cross, the perfect sinless one going to the cross, that should correct us. Say, wait a minute, wait a minute, Gary, you're not all that. You can't lift this cross without him. You need him. We have that Thomas face-to-face with Jesus moment. Remember Thomas in the upper room after the resurrection? He's been following him for three years. He's one of the disciples. Peter gets such a bad rap, but Thomas here at the end is the one that's saying, I'm really not sure. And Jesus comes through the door and stands there and says, hey, Thomas, come here. Touch these wounds. Put your hand in my side. Can you imagine Thomas's moment of defeat? How humiliating for Thomas. 
In front of all the other guys, Jesus is basically saying, you don't really believe yet, so come here, I'm going to help you in your unbelief. And Thomas says those words that make me gasp every time I say them. My Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. You did that for me, Thomas says. So when we, when we take up our crosses, when we think about Christ on the cross, it ought to evoke that, my Lord and my God. I'm okay if the air conditioner is not set at the right temperature. You died for me, a sinner, my Lord and my God. And then finally, it saves us. It's the thing that leads us into life, free life here on earth and for eternity. It reorients us. It reorients us. It gives us his vision of the way things should look. And that vision, folks, is the vision that children have. It's the vision that children have. Miss Terry's over there giggling. It's the vision because she knows. Children are innocent. Children are trustworthy. Jesus, at the end of this gospel, he grabs a child and puts it on his lap, and he says, guys, this cruciform life, this life as a servant, it's going to make you look and behave like this, thank God. Because children trust beyond all measure. Children trust beyond all measure, don't they? So imagine this morning, I'll conclude with this. Imagine this morning that I just came over here and said, okay, let's have a few of the young people, anybody under 16, come up here. And what I want you to do, young people, is I want you to sing Jesus Loves Me. We all know that song, right? Jesus loves me this. So bring them up here, we give them the words, and I say, okay, sing. And these young people, without any practice, they sing Jesus Loves Me. And you know there wouldn't be a dry eye in the room. You know we would all be smiling. We'd all, we couldn't wait to clap for those young people at the end for a million reasons. There'd be a million reasons grandparents would think of their grandchildren, parents would think of their kids. Maybe some of these kids are their kids. But we'd all be just overwhelmed with joy about what we just watched happen, wouldn't we? And we'd clap at the end. That was perfect. We'd say that was perfect. Now imagine I invite the Westminster Boys Choir in. I invite the Westminster Boys Choir in, and they've all got their katas and albs on, and they're from England. They've flown over here. They're world-famous, world-renowned, these young men that can sing. And they get up here, and I say, they're going to serenade us with Jesus loves me, this I know. And imagine that a couple of them have a cold, or imagine that a couple of them uh, aren't feeling well, and it doesn't sound so good. So some of us sitting there will go, hmm, well, I'm kind of disappointed. I thought, a little, I thought the Westminster Boys Choir was a little better than that. I mean, they can't even get Jesus loves me right, for Pete's sake. Imagine what they're thinking. They've come all the way over here, they're doing this world tour, and suddenly they're stumbling and fumbling through it, right? It's because they're dealing with the sense of, we've got to do this right. And we're dealing with our sense of, we need to hear these guys do this right. But the reality is, what we all long for is the unrehearsed little kids, isn't it? Isn't it? If I gave you the option, some of us might still go, Westminster Boys Choir, I've heard my kids, but no. Um, <laughs> the reality is, we, we would be more connected to God, we would be more connected to one another, and we would have a better vision of the kingdom if we could get young people up here, unrehearsed, who might bobble it a little bit, rather than this fantastic performance by a group of professionals. I mean, if they come to town, go see them, they're amazing, I'm not beating them up. I'm just saying, do you see the difference? Do you see the difference? So in defeat, in, in, in humility, in failure, we can still see. We're promised, not just still see, but we're promised that God's glory is going to be made manifest. So I do want us to kind of rush out of here this afternoon and just be cognizant of the moment after you leave here that you've either messed something up, because there is that human propensity to mess things up if you haven't noticed. 
You've either promised to call somebody and you'll forget. You've promised to stop by the store and you won't do it. You were going to go meet somebody for lunch and you change your plans. But there'll be a moment in the next couple hours where you have messed something up. So in the midst of messing that thing up, ask the Lord, Lord, how are you going to glorify this? How are you going to redeem this? Because I want to be connected to you, God. I want to be connected to my neighbor. I need your correcting grace in my life. I need to be corrected. And I, and I, and I long for your salvation today and forever. Today and forever. So embrace, embrace our failures. Embrace our mistakes. Uh, look at it with new eyes. And especially look at it with the promises of God. Amen? Amen.